Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Homecoming, a podcast that provides the space for Asians and Asian Americans of all backgrounds to share their diverse stories, experiences, and insights about a variety of different topics. I'm your host, Angel Rena, and thank you for tuning in to this off-season episode. I promised you all at the beginning of this month in my season one wrap up that I wouldn't leave you hanging in between seasons. So here I am. And here is an episode that I'm very excited to share with you. So today, Linda Howard Bates, who is a parent of two and resides in Rhode Island, is here with me to talk about growing up biracial, um, navigating conversations about race with her parents and now her kids, what it's been like for parents during the COVID-19 pandemic, because shout out to all you hardworking parents out there, and how she's been staying connected during this time, and finally, to talk about the importance of voting and what voting means to her. Because, as you all probably know, the U.S. presidential election is coming up and actually has already technically started with the millions of Americans who have already voted early. But if for some reason, if for some reason you haven't yet made a voting plan, please do that right now and make sure your friends and families have a plan as well. Because by the time this episode is released, there will, on there will only be a few days until November 3rd. So if you are going to vote in person, make sure you're safe, uh, wearing a mask, social distancing, etc. If you're planning on sending in an absentee ballot, you can drop that off in a legitimate ballot box. And also almost all states allow you to deliver that ballot in person at your local election office if you're afraid it won't arrive on time through mail. Um, if you still need more information, like finding an early voting location or a local polling place or to double check your voter registration, please visit vote.org. And it's, it's just that easy, www.vote.org. And I'll also drop that link in the episode description so you can check out all of their resources. But uh, for me, this is my first ever presidential election that I'm voting in, and I'm excited to vote. I'm ready to do so. Um, I definitely have a lot of different thoughts about, uh, you know, the rhetoric that like voting will quote unquote save our country or like that voting is the only thing we can do and you know we can maybe talk about that later but I won't get into that right now because I think now is the time when all of us really need to focus on getting people to the polls and exercising their right to choose the next president um, and I know people out there may have different reservations about voting for a variety of different reasons but I guess you know to those people just really think about that decision um, I think policy wise and also just like Structurally, when we think about things like climate change and immigration, there are two very different potential directions the U.S. can go in. And so it really is up to us to show up and vote. So that is my voting spiel. And we will definitely return to the topic of voting at the end of this episode. But Linda, thank you so much for being here with me today. And thank you so much for reaching out to me um, a few months ago and for being so willing to just like have a conversation with a complete stranger on the internet. Um, and I'm really excited to talk to you today about like race, human connection, life, all of these thoughts I've been having these past few months in quarantine. So I really, really appreciate it. Um, how have you been? How are you doing so far? 
Uh, I think the typical answer, which is very true, is as well as can be expected. And honestly, in many ways, privilege has given me the opportunity to be truly as safe as possible. Um, so for me, myself, as a parent, um, as a member of an intergenerational uh, pod, it's been um, a challenge, but in not the same ways that it is for others. You know, we have the security of our homes, um, the connection of uh, my immediate family, as well as my extended family, and that my parents and my brother and his wife and niece are nearby as well. So between those things, it's made this time both um, almost deceptively uh, simpler than it is, I think, for other folks, because we have had extra adults. We have had uh, extra connection time um, to reconnect and connect with people in lots of different ways. Wow, that's really great. I feel like now is the time when we really need like some support in numbers and just having family members, friends, um, and having them so close to you is really great. Um, but yeah, Linda, would you be able to introduce yourself to the listeners? Who are you? You know, what are your pronouns, where you're from, what you do for a living, your ethnic background, and really any part of your identity that you want to share? Yeah, so um, Linda Howard, as you noted, and um, my pronouns are they, them, she, her. Uh, I originally grew up in Florida. Uh, I'm a New England transplant um, and really loving it. Uh, came up here for college a while back and uh, have never managed to leave, which is kind of weird for someone who's from a warm place. Um, I'm the uh, daughter of a retired, uh, returned Peace Corps volunteer who's a German-American and my mom who he met in the Philippines because they worked together. Um, so, you know, growing up biracial in Florida was its own uh, different um, way of being. I'm now married to a German-Irish-American uh, and we have two kids. Um, so, uh, you know, we had joked ages before that, you know, our lives are very different and our heritages are in some ways really different, but they're also tremendously the same because of some of these connections. Um, and then, uh, you know, part of this biracial identity for me and as it has turned out to be for my children as well, is the idea that we also don't always present the same way that someone might expect an Asian to present. Um, you know, my skin, especially here in New England, a lot more pale. Uh, my features are not traditionally um, Asian for whatever description that might look like. And then I have two kids that look radically different. Uh, one who got the tall and lanky and uh, dark brown hair and <laughs> dark brown eyes and dark brown skin. And one that got the tall and, well, turning into lanky, um, but red hair and green eyes and <laughs> pale skin and freckles. Um, and, you know, so we, we each look like our family, if you look at us as a whole. Um, but unfortunately, the reality is that not everyone does, um, no matter how much they know about you or don't know about you. So presenting and presentation has been a big part of my reality and it's becoming part of our whole family's reality too as as we navigate the world together. As for what I do for a living, um, I've been at the same company for 20 plus years, uh, currently doing human resources, IT administration, um, and I love it because I have both this like analytical part of my brain that really loves computers and stuff like that, um, but by being in HR I also get to help people and I think that's one of my favorite parts about my job is that at the end of the day, I've usually helped at least one person 
with something in their life. And that's, that's important to me. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Definitely a lot that we will expand on more in this conversation in this episode today. And um, I just want to say that I, yeah, I've been really looking forward to talking with you in this episode for the past week after we had our um, initial meeting, because I don't know, you were just like spouting so much life advice. And honestly, um, I feel like this is true for a lot of people right now, but I'm really like jumping at any chance I can get to meet new people and just meet new, I don't know, just like have a human conversation, a human relationship with someone. So um, thank you so much for being willing to do this. Um, Yeah, so I feel like a lot of people are going to learn a lot from our episode, um, get more insight into your life and who you are, but also just like what parents have been going through during this time. So I think um, my first question to you is just setting up context for the rest of our conversation um, on like generational gaps. But yeah, when you were growing up in Florida, what was your experience um, being a biracial kid? What questions or thoughts did you have about your race or your identity as you navigated um, your childhood and also like going into college in the East Coast as well? So I think it was really interesting and I can almost like divide my childhood into before school um, and then high school and then college. So before school, uh, we had a group of friends and family where the vast majority had either uh, interracial adoptions, biracial families, biracial parents. So just like any kid, you know, you're very self-centered. You don't realize you're different. And especially when your family and your life is surrounded by other people like you, it's really easy to assume that's the way it is. And then you get into school and you get into an environment with other people um, and you discover that apparently everyone else doesn't think you're quote unquote normal. Um, But by that time, I'd also discovered my own personal geekdom. So (laughs) when that happens, you never feel normal anyway. Um, It would come up from time to time. It would come up at a restaurant when a waitress would hand my dad a menu and three children's menus because they assumed my mom was one of his three adopted kids Uh, or the confusion beyond belief when we would walk into a Chinese restaurant or a Japanese restaurant and I would ask for chopsticks because I'd learned how to use them. My Asian looking mom would ask for a spoon and fork because that's how she eats. My dad would eat very Western style and then we'd sneak in a fast food option for my brother who didn't like rice at the time. So, you know, we, we caused confusion to so many people because especially at that time in Florida, biracial couples were not um, as common. Uh, it's one of the beauties for me of moving north and to where I live in Rhode Island where there's a high proportion of biracial couples and uh, in many ways we're less obvious and part of it is also the time you know there are more uh, interracial relationships um, across the board across the u.s and i think that that helps us be less other in many situations not a perfect protection but it is uh, definitely a help often i don't think we really talked about race in my household 
part of that is that my dad's white. Um, and when you've only witnessed it at a distance, it's harder to see what that might look like. And we always had conversations about equity um, and sort of topics of the time. And social justice in general was always a core principle for my father and his family. I mean, part of the reason he went into the Peace Corps was to help people both preserve their um, identities um, as well as provide new venues for education, health, uh, agriculture. So, you know, that's part of, was always part of his general ethos and how we grew up as a family. Um, for my mom, she often just kind of missed some of, of, of the comments. You know, they, they didn't register because English isn't her first language. And then the social context in which they were in, you know, we've had conversations since that she's like, I think I really saw a lot of racism, but I never knew what it was at the time. Um, so those two things are really very different. You know, you don't think about them in the same way when your context is different. My dad is also just the sort of person that always has a gentle humor and always called people out, for lack of a better term, um, but with humor, you know, the waitress that offered him, you know, three kids' menus. Um, once we got to the table, he quietly handed my mom an adult menu, and when the waitress saw that, she got very embarrassed, and my dad just said, well... I'm sure you thought that I looked too old to be her, you know, her husband, but for real, we're married and those are our kids. And, you know, it was his way of really pointing out to folks when they stumbled without making them feel uncomfortable. And I always appreciate that, even if I'm not good at that myself. My dad's really good at that just in the moment. And, you know, um, pretty recently, within the last four or five years, we were out with my two kids and my brother. And a couple at the next table were like, oh, our kids aren't with us tonight. We're on a date night. And then they asked us point blank, so who's dad? And it was the most awkward moment of the world because they couldn't, they had to ask. And for me, I um, I don't know how to deal with those. I, I do tend to freeze a bit. And I just kind of looked at them and went, oh. He's my husband and he's my brother. And I wish in some ways that I could have either been snarky or funny or something, but it stopped the conversation, which in some ways was good. Um, and I hope maybe they hit pause and thought about what it means to be a couple <laughs> and what to boundaries to chaos. But, you know, it still happens. It, it happens regularly, uh, even today, that those assumptions are made and that those questions are asked. Yeah, um, it is definitely very difficult to stand up to people like in the moment when you are faced with like racism or microaggressions. That's something that I've honestly always beat myself up about. It's like I, you know, when I'm at home, like, I have this, like, bold plan where I'm going to stand up to that person, call them out, be super snarky, and, like, you know, that's, like, my imagination, though, and then, and then, but when it comes to the actual point when I'm actually faced with that sort of situation, it is actually very, very difficult to, I don't know, to, like, have the guts, have 
I don't know, the stamina to be able to face someone. It's, it's very difficult. So that is very impressive that your dad was able to do that. Yeah, and he does it pr- pretty regularly still. Like, uh, and yeah, I don't know, is it, uh, is it decades of conditioning of being a polite woman? Is it decades of conditioning about, you know, respecting elders? You know, you never sometimes know where that is or if it's just it's not part of your personality to be quick like that. Um, It's definitely, I'm sure, an art and a talent. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, My next question for you, I am curious if you feel like you're dealing with the same questions and thoughts right now as an adult that you did when you were growing up when it comes to race? Um, In other words, like, do you think about race differently now? I definitely... I definitely think about race in general very differently. Um, My own experience has unfortunately not entirely changed as much as I would have hoped, I think. Um, you know, if I think to being a kid and kind of explaining my family, um, and then going to college and that first week when everybody's going to clubs and I was like, Ooh, an Asian alliance, this is going to be awesome. And then I got there and everyone looked at me funny. And then my name doesn't look like all the other names. And, um, yeah, then that doesn't make you feel part of what you had hoped to be part of because it had been missing for your whole life. Uh, And then to go into the world and honestly take advantage sometimes of the fact that no one knows uh, who you are so you don't have to deal with the idiot at the end of the bar who's like, ooh, you're from Asia. You must be really interesting. or telling you about that one uncle they have who used to be in a base in the Philippines or uh, completely unknowingly getting your country wrong um, and telling you that it's in the Caribbean and arguing with you about that. Um, to, you know, being in the workplace um, and in some ways feeling like you're fighting to participate in affinity circles because you have to prove your credentials. So you have all of those different sort of downsides and negatives of being true to your identity and um, open and honest and vocal about how you can speak to a experience that people assume you couldn't possibly have. The last year though, um, in the last four years, have really challenged some of that for me because even though I was conceptually aware that racism is very different, um, that colorism is real across different ethnicities and identities, that the true legacy of racism in America is so deep that it feels like an iceberg sometimes. And, you know, I've apparently been living in the tropics and now just saw the tip of it, and now I'm understanding there's so much more. So my understanding of race also has made stepping back and not not representing the person of color voice in the room 
um, but being an ally instead because my presentation gives me that privilege to not overshadow someone else's experience. Um, and it's hard sometimes to have to, to feel like you have to step back, but the reality is there is a vast majority of my life where it has not mattered and no one knows who my mother is and no one knows what my family is or my middle name is. And that's given me advantages that others have not had. So it really did. It changed how I think about race and it changed how I talk to others and how I bring the voice of those who don't have my privileges and try to showcase them more. So that's been really, really different, really, really different. When I do it through the lens of parenting, um, there's all these different things to contemplate. Um, you know, there's always these conversations. Is that an age-appropriate conversation? Well, yes. <laughs> if someone can experience something, then it's appropriate for them. You know, Early on, we talked about sexism in our household because if you have a tomboy in your family, like myself or my daughters, they're going to run into sexism so early it's appalling. They won't be able to find a sports jersey that they like because it's not representative of them as a person. Um, they won't be accepted into a pickup game on the playground when we had such things. Um, <laughs> uh, they'll be told they can't do X because, because they're a girl. And so because we've had those conversations with them early, um, my husband included in being a strong advocate for them to always be who they want to be and do what they would like to do, it's been easier to walk into those conversations about race. It's been easier to be able to say, some people won't look at you the same way. That actually leads really nicely into my next question about um you know, now that you're a parent, do you feel like there is a difference between how you dealt with racism and micro microaggressions and how you teach your kids to do that? Because, yeah, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about how to have conversations with, like, my potential future kids about race. And like you said, you know, the question of when is it a time to bring it up? Um, but yeah, how have you been having those conversations with your children? Doesn't necessarily need to be about race, but you know, issues like racism, sexism, et cetera, like you've already explained um, and compare that to how you dealt with it and maybe how your parents uh, urged you to deal with that. So I don't think we ever had those conversations when I was a kid, or if we did, they were in the context of kindness and bullying, um, right? And that neither are ever okay, and that it is okay to stand up for yourself, um, and it is okay to speak. Um, but I was a very non-confrontational human when I was younger, and so it was uh, it was easy to let things go. Even as I got older, you know, learning a little bit from my dad's book of taking a little humor and, and letting it slide off. I think there's a big impact to doing that, though. One, because you've reached one less person or one less group of people throughout your life who maybe later wouldn't 
make that comment or would stop to think. Um, so I think for us, it always comes back to acknowledging the feeling of being othered or bullied or concerned um, about the feeling of not being included, of being uh, called names. Um, or in many ways for my family, I think, and my girls in particular, how it feels worse when it happens to a friend or someone you know and you watch it. And so, you know, empowering them from when they first could articulate their thoughts to speak against unkindness is the first step, right? Little kids understand fear way better than adults do in some ways because it's so simple to them. It is either right or wrong. There isn't a middle ground. It is not nice to make your friend cry. It's not nice to make someone else cry. And my kids have really held on to that. They've held on to this idea of fairness and equity, no matter if it is playground play or conversations um, or even our environment. So, you know, when kids learn, even when they're little, how to speak about something that matters to them, that just becomes part of who they are. And that's been what's so amazing to continue to see as my kids get older and older and more articulate about issues and more articulate about their conversations and articulate about their world that's really made a huge difference um, in how they're able to manage things. They're also uh, at a school where social-emotional learning is a huge component of the curriculum. So not only have they gotten that support and reinforcement from the books they read, from our family, from our family environment, from their friend circle, but even at school, that's part of the conversation. That's part of the conversation every day in many ways. You know, we get our little weekly update of what happened in class this week, and social-emotional learning is at the same rank as science and math and English and social studies. So when you place equal weight on this learning, it becomes natural in a way that I don't think many people of my generation had, and even newer generations up to now, and even generations right now of the same age. So it's amazing to watch, and it's humbling to get tuned into, for sure. I'm curious to hear a little more about the social and emotional learning at your kids' school. Like, what does that look like? Like, what does that manifest itself as? It's a private friends school. Um, so friends are Quakers. And they really uh, believe in the tenets of the Quaker faith. And part of that is that we are all community and we are all equals. That could be taken in so many ways that are not the intention of that. But when the school itself holds space for students during Black Lives Matter protests so that students could have moments to themselves, when students are encouraged to not attend school and attend protests, when social justice is discussed at different ages in different ways, 
But it also still goes back to real basics, no matter the age, right? That identity is important. If you have a friend who uses a different pronoun than you do, a measure of respect to that friend and a show that you are equals is to use their pronouns. If somebody brings their selves and their authentic selves, that that's something to be valued and that care for others, regardless of every metric, every identity, that that's something you can learn, right? Something you can practice. You can practice empathy. You can practice active listening. You can practice questions. It's really fascinating, absolutely fascinating to talk through what that looks like and that kids get it and they internalize it. It's just amazing, just amazing to watch. Yeah, and speaking of, you know, social justice activism and, um, you know, particularly we're seeing this resurgence of awareness and attention towards the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, We also have a ton of anti-Asian sentiment that's happening recently. Um, You know, I am seeing basically daily all of these different hate crimes directed towards Black Americans, Asian Americans, Chinese Americans, I'm curious to hear about how you have navigated talking about those different issues, like both with yourself and just reflecting on your own thoughts and feelings about everything, but also how you've navigated conversations about race, Black Lives Matter, anti-Asian sentiment with your kids and your family as well. So difference in age has meant some different things for us. And we generally, um, although we don't not talk about specific day-to-day events, we have to work with a five-year age gap. And so some of the conversations have been very general when my younger daughter's around, um, talking about the fact that we've had problems where someone was killed by police officers and it was not because they broke the rules. It was because of the way they looked. And we have people who are fighting to make sure that doesn't happen again. And the way we're fighting is not by fighting, we're protesting. We are sharing our voice and our words with the world, right? My older child is not on social media, but has a device, can read the news. We listen to NPR if it's just her with us in the car or, you know, sitting around the house. So she's tuned into the world. And some of those things that she's learned along the way, it angers and baffles her that this is the world that we have. How how are we here? Why are we here? Who could do that? How? Why? You know, adults are asking themselves that question. We ask ourselves those questions. And it's 
if you can't answer it for yourself, <laughs> it's so much harder to answer it for your kids. So much harder. It doesn't make sense in my happy corner of the world how these things can happen. And at the same time, I can be angry and support the fight and speak of it in my circles and chip away at the folks around me who maybe don't get it. This conversation that we're having is not unlike the conversations I love to have. I don't have to be in person. (laughs) I'm a huge introvert. This has almost in some ways been amazing because uh, people I connect with who I normally would maybe see once a year in person, I've always connected with them by phone or by now FaceTime or Zoom or whatever we have to be able to see each other. And it's meant that instead of taking a commute time, I take that time to call somebody and talk with them and learn, learn what it's like to be a queer person in central Ohio um, or a parent stuck at home in a metro city like Chicago or Boston or New York. I've gotten to reconnect with those folks that I know and in some ways this isolation has meant that other people also have just, they've needed to talk. And when you talk with somebody, you learn. And so I don't always have an answer for why or how or who could do this. But I can share the perspective of those who have shared their perspectives and their stories with me. And I can explain what those are because being alone or being sad or being scared are all things we share as humans. What makes us feel alone or scared or sad? can be different, but we can still connect to the feeling and then understand maybe how our words or our actions can make someone else feel that way and how we can not do that next time. Because we're all human and we will at some point fail. I I stumble over pronouns still. I uh, have to think about phrases that have been in my vocabulary for years. But I can also ask for forgiveness, and I can teach others to say I'm sorry and tell my kids that it's okay to make that mistake. But don't do it again and apologize and mean it and try harder, because that's all we can do is try harder. And one day that'll be enough trying harder if we all do it together. Yeah, that's definitely very powerful. Yeah, I think it's good to hear about how it's a continual, a continuous journey. You know what I mean? It continuing to reflect on race and racism and sexism, sexuality, like all of these different identity markers, it's a continuous conversation and a continuous journey. And I think that on one hand scares me a little bit 
and it makes me a bit sad but at the same time it's very empowering to think about for you like for you for example how you still have like that hope and that vigor to continue reflecting on that and also passing that along to your kids um one thing that I wanted to ask you that I realized I didn't was like to what extent you were sort of immersed in Filipino culture when you were growing up like how often did you go to the Philippines like yeah what was what was that like um so US to the Philippines is is quite a journey and very expensive um so uh my mom took me home to meet her family when I was very little um two or three I have the only memories I have are constructed ones but um as a big wedding anniversary gift, my parents decided they would give themselves the gift of going back to the Philippines. Um, and I got to go with my brother, um, one of my cousins from my dad's side of the family, and then also um, my then boyfriend, now spouse. Um, and we were there for over a week um, in my mom's hometown, getting to visit her friends and visit with family. We had um, a huge lechon and a big barrio fiesta with the whole family because we were there over New Year's and um, it was just such a wonderful time to be there. But, um, you know, an advantage of having your, um, you know, your, if you're a biracial family, having your white parent be um, a retired Peace Corps volunteer um, is that my dad spent seven years in the Philippines. He speaks Tagalog and regularly completely throws um, Filipinos in, you know, like the grocery store and introduces himself in Tagalog. And, um, you know, they don't expect this tall, uh, white-haired white guy to come say, Kamusta ka? <laughs> um, so, you know, it was, you know, our family fridge had uh, pork chops and sauerkraut and mashed potatoes and adobo and pancit and spaghetti as leftovers. Um, so we had this amazing and wonderful blend and some of my mom's family was here in the States. So, you know, we would spend, um, Thanksgiving maybe with my dad's side of the family, but then we would spend, um, Christmas, uh, with just our family, but we'd still do a Noche Buena, a midnight mass dinner. Um, and then we'd go for a new year's giant party where I don't actually know half the people that would be there that my aunt would throw with every type of Filipino food ever you can imagine on a giant table of amazingness. Um, but also things like, uh, you know, being involved with um, or sponsoring groups um, to come from the Philippines, like a, a Bayanihan dance troupe that came. Um, so it was always part of my culture growing up. And that was, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, we incorporated into our wedding. We incorporated Filipino traditions into our wedding and we had the cord, the veil, and the coin, and we, we moved them to be more in line with our own relationship where it wasn't about the man giving these to the woman, but rather that we were sharing these as acknowledgments of the, by, the ties that bind us and the home we hope to share and the prosperity we wanted to share with each other. Um, you know, at our wedding, my dad wore a barang Tagalog um, and my mom wore a Western dress because that's what she found that she liked and my dad doesn't like suits. Um, and, you know, we've always been able to blend those things together. Um, and even now, even though I don't 
cook. My husband's the cook of the house. Um, the one thing I, I do make is I make adobo and I make pancit and um, Filipino dishes, uh, fried rice and stuff as part of our, you know, household routine. And, you know, we honor a lot of our same traditions um, over the holidays and in our lives together and just share that. So it's definitely, we've continued that tradition of honoring all of those traditions, whether it's a pickle on the tree to honor the German heritage or, um, you know, making, uh, what are they called? Uh, oh, I can't think of the German name of them, but basically mincemeat pies, but they're next to a leche flan from the Philippines. <laughs> it's, um, can you tell we have a lot of food um, that we like in our world? Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, we've continued it too. Um, we showed my mom the Pixar movie Coco. And uh, in the Philippines, we don't really do Halloween, but we do have All Saints Day. But it's done very differently where you, you, do, you visit the graves of your, your family that are passed on and you celebrate with them and you share a meal with them and there's traditional dishes. And so after seeing Coco, my mom um, asked. And so this year will be the first time we will do it and we will um, do a traditional Halloween here and the kids will dress up and there'll be candy. And then we're going to get together on uh, November 1st and we're going to honor all of our family from all sides and share stories about them because that's how you do keep people alive is through those stories. Uh, so, yeah, we've always incorporated it and it's just, it's always felt natural uh, so that, you know, it's just part of who we are and that you know, we've learned Irish traditions from my mother-in-law's side of the family and the different German traditions from my husband's side that are different than my dad's German-American traditions because there's not, they're not a unified type of, of world either. Um, you know, it sounds a little kumbaya, but in some ways, if you're open to those sharings, it's not, it doesn't have to be a conflict. It doesn't have to be an either or. It's absolutely just us. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, now I want to ask you a little bit more about like how it's been in general being a parent. Um, yeah, like share any aspect of your parenting journey. When, when you were a kid, did you dream of like having a family, having kids? expectation versus reality of being a parent what have been the challenges and joys um yeah really share any aspect of your parenting journey that you would like so um actually where i am today is kind of where i expected to be with kids and a career like i i really expected to have all of it um so so when I found somebody who had the same ideas and and concepts and shared the same beliefs and how parenting and partnering should be. It was such a relief in many ways that there could be somebody else who was as insistent about kids in their life, because um, it is, it's almost like a passion. 
<laughs> and then as all of our pieces fell into place and we had our first our older, now our younger daughter as well, it's been still yet a different journey than we expected and also exactly what we expected. So with that, there is no guidebook how my parents parented, how their parents parented. Every generation has different challenges. You know, I'll, I'll sometimes hear someone say, oh, I can't imagine being a parent today with the internet. I'm sure people said, oh, I can't imagine being a parent today with cable TV or with three channels of television or that funky TV box, you know, versus a radio versus, you know, like change has always been constant in the human evolution. And that's part of what makes humans awesome. But it also means, you know, you're talking about being, you know, almost worried about the idea that you would still have to be fighting for races against racism or sexism or fill in your blank. But it's because we continuously change. We have the preponderance of this human civilization behind us, uh, whether Western or Eastern or centered or not centered. And what each of us can do as people, and then and you choose or are fortunate enough or have designed a life with children as well, is that you can build what is the next thing by doing what's right to you. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who have opinions about parenting, and I have opinions about parenting, and how we've chosen to do those things is still about being this amazing and terrible dichotomy of being true to ourselves as people and what we would like the world to be like and laying a foundation and offering the guidance for them to be their own people too. I don't want my kids to be clones of myself and I'm not a clone of my parents. Uh, and they're not. And it's exciting every day when they choose the things that you have chosen. Um, it's exciting every day when you find a new commonality that you didn't know you had because they didn't find it yet until now. Um, it's exciting to find things that they're different than you about. Uh, even when it's a massive challenge. <laughs> So when you see your life as an invitation to the next thing, um, it's a lot easier than if you see the next thing as an obligation. Now, there's still rules of society. <laughs> there are still rules of institutions. Uh, just because there is a rule you disagree with at school, you can't immediately disobey it. But you can protest it you can uh, encourage the institution to change and then continue working at it until your world does start to feel and look and act back towards you the way that you would like it to feel and act back towards you. So it's tough because you have to learn how to navigate these things and it's, it's an everyday journey and some days it's tiring and some days you can say, I'm going to wait till tomorrow and some days you have to make a stand. This pandemic's put lots of things on hold. 
lots of conversations that didn't have that had to be had in the past aren't being had right now. Um, and other ones are ha being had because we have to have them. Um, you know, how do you talk about illness and hospitalization and death when maybe those conversations wouldn't have come up before? How do you talk about emotions and anxiety and depression when you may not have? It's not the easiest, it's not the simplest, but I think that's part of this universe too, is that it's not the simplest and it's not the easiest. So we do, we have to have those conversations and I think that's been the plus minus here. <laughs> I have to have those conversations, <laughs> but I'm also having those conversations instead of waiting till it was the right time. This is our time. So it is the right time because I don't have another choice. There isn't another time. I definitely have so much empathy and I don't like my heart is just going out to all the parents out there because it's just, it just seems like so much work, so much you have to navigate. Of course there are like joys and I'm sure, you know, we can, you can share a little more about like what have been the happiest moments of you know interacting with your kids having kids but it's a lot to juggle at once and also think about how you also have your own life and your own passions and your own activities that you're doing like on top of being a parent and trying to manage like someone else's life you know at the same time so you know what you're doing is incredibly like impressive and like thank you for everything that you're doing as a parent um i know especially during covid19 it's probably a lot harder because um are your are your kids were your kids at home like because of school and everything like were they remote they were definitely remote <laughs> <laughs> We uh, we learned many things about, uh, and my husband and I are both pretty technical people, but we got to be very friendly with our our internet provider because of problems that we were having. Um, but yeah, the spring was this uh, redefining of boundaries and lines for each of us where we had to create spaces for us to have um, productive days, right? Um, how do you juggle different start times, working bandwidth for video, not video, um, time for homework, time to move, time to do the things you have to do every day, like eat and <laughs> cook and, um, you know, uh, um, we have a very equitable relationship in that a lot of what we've always done has been to divide and conquer. So, you know, that's meant that there's been more division. Um, and, you know, there's a little bit of a joke in our family that I'm kind of the project manager. Um, uh, we play a game called Pandemic, which is a cooperative board game. Uh, and it's about um, defeating a pandemic. Um, <laughs> So it made it a little bit easier to sort of relate our different roles and that, you know, mom's the project manager and I'm going to make sure that we're all organized and dad's the infection control specialist because he's the one who goes into the world and then comes back and makes sure everything's safe for the rest of the community and right. 
um, but that it we each all had our roles, right? We all had to cooperate. So that also meant a little more transparency where it's not just I'm at work, right? Or we're, you know, this is important or whatever it was, but that we had a family schedule. We have a giant whiteboard in our kitchen and the giant whiteboard had Monday start time, start time, critical meeting, presentation, this thing due. Everyone became more equal in some ways because it wasn't more important that uh, this person had a, an open story hour with a visiting Zoom-in book artist or I had a call where I was doing a presentation or there was a meeting or an interview to be done. All of these things were equal. And so it meant having a conversation that said, there are three things happening tomorrow at two o'clock and who is going to need help and who doesn't need help. Who is going to need quiet and who doesn't need quiet. Who is completely free and should be very, very quiet for everyone else, please. Right? What did that look like? And then also setting up those lines so that it wasn't 6.45 p.m. my time and I'm still at work. But that I also still needed a little bit of a commute or a transfer from I am done with work and now I'm coming home to be mom and wife and partner and the doer of laundry um, or me. Because <laughs> I get to do that too right? Um, hey, this is my time to do X, Y, Z. Some of that balance has come through more responsibility for each of us. And when I say more responsibility, I don't mean necessarily like thou shalt do more chores, but that the responsibility of awareness, when someone looks tired, that you offer to do the thing that they're doing at that moment so they can stop and do something else the invitation to all join in when someone looks a little lonely and have a group cuddle on the couch or when we're just all done that it's all okay for us to sit and find something ridiculous on Netflix and laugh or to play a board game together or to sit in quiet while music plays and we all read whatever that looks like to have that communal awareness not something we had <laughs> We're a pretty tight-knit family, and I don't think we had it to the level we do now because we have to. We're here in these four walls. And we have to share space and together. Don't do it successfully every day. <laughs> we try really hard. And that's it. We try really hard. Yeah, I know there's always so much more we can talk about, but I think it would also be good to sort of discuss how you have stayed recharged and connected to other people during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I know you um, mentioned earlier in this episode that you reached out to people on social media through, you know, like your college forum on Facebook and stuff like that. But yeah, how have you been continuing to have those social relationships with people yeah i am i am actually like pretty um pro social media which is not always a common or um, understood stance but you know when i was a kid it was 
a privilege to talk to my mom's family in the Philippines because long distance international phone calls could wipe out our budget if we weren't careful because it caught the the physical cost was so much. And then we got email and, and I started connecting with my cousins who in some cases I had never met. And then I got to go home and meet them in person. And then we continued to communicate. And the minute I got onto Facebook, I like immediately exploded in this giant feed of people who I know and were related to. And then also I got, like you said, involved in these different online groups, um, mostly associated with my alumni group, but also personal interests I have in geekdom and other spaces like knitting and cooking and stuff. And um, it's meant some monitoring and making sure that that didn't overwhelm where I am today and who I am and what I need to accomplish. But it's also had the effect of making sure that I know all of my cousin's children's names and I know whose birthday it is or who just joined field hockey like my girls do and getting advice and sharing advice with other parents, um, learning about new awesome books or games or ways to manage through this insanity that we're all living in at this moment. Um, and then like the best part about some of this isolation is having the extra time and my mom taking some extra time to start teaching my kids Tagalog, which I never learned as a kid. Um, and then on the spur of the moment, deciding that we could figure out how to coordinate a 13-hour time difference and my cousin woke her kids up before school one morning and my kids stayed up late past their bedtime and we had a ridiculously fun video call where we just talked and made faces at each other. and saw their house in their condo uh, and they saw our house in our, our space in our yard and how that was so different for our two worlds. And then inspired by that, my mom kind of put together a family reunion online and they did karaoke and my girls found out that their cousins love Hamilton as much as they do and <laughs> that we all love singing and being silly and um, and that these tools that they're using in class, they can also use with their cousins to write fun little quizzes about our lives and our family. Um, so it's it's been able to connect them, which in some ways relieves some of the need for us to just be ourselves in our own little community and give ourselves a little more space. You know, I know everyone's tired of the Zoom cocktail party, but it's still a connection and it gives each of you your own space. So whether that's a one-on-one -on -one or a gang of friends coming together to celebrate a birthday or um, two kids playing with their Lego sets together, uh, all of those connection points are so great. And it makes me recharged to have those connections outside of my house. And the other way that I use that as a time to recharge is that I often only use voice. Um, I will pick up a phone and I will call somebody and I will, as I say, take them on a walk with me and I'll walk around my yard or my garden <laughs> or my, my neighborhood, which gets me moving, which gets me recharged, which gets me sunlight or 
green things or fruits and vegetables in my in my garden or those things that for me are recharging and it's interesting that those things are like that this you know normally very introverted happy in her little corner of the world person um gets recharged by talking to somebody across the world or across the country but that it is it is it's something that i love to do the other thing that i try to drag my kids into as well is i love the mail um, my mom was a postal carrier for a good part of her life here in the u.s and I still love mail. She had pen pals, and I used to remember stamps from all over the world. And now I send cards. I send probably three or four cards or letters or postcards or pictures a week out to the world. Um, and so sometimes I get one back, and it's really neat and it's fun. Or somebody uh, in past times would go visit a place and send me a postcard because they know that I just love to see parts of our world. Um, it's a way to travel without leaving the happiness of my home. Um, and so that, you know, connecting with people, whether I know them or not, um, I don't know. It just, it makes me feel right about the world. Because <laughs> honestly, we need to revive like sending each other letters and you know sending each other mail. Like we have to make that cool again. Um, I mean, maybe not now because we don't want to overwhelm the postal service. But yes, um, Linda, the last section of questions that I want to ask you about is voting. Um, why is voting important to you and what does voting mean to you so you know i mentioned my dad's american and um i had the privilege of growing up next door to my father's dad um and i guess it's not common in all families to have conversations and i do mean conversations um about politics but my first like civic engagement i was probably seven or eight and there was a big presidential election and it was carter versus reagan and um i came home from school with you know my little like newspaper whatever it was and i was all fired up before jimmy carter who my parents supported for lots of reasons and uh, my grandfather didn't agree and being a little kid you know i wanted to talk to him about it and he did and he talked about what was important to him and he then sat and listened to me talk about what was important to me and at that age it was about the environment and, and jimmy carter's you know interest in the environment and keeping a, a green clean america in the world for our future and for my grandfather it was about social security and being economically safe in his retirement um and we didn't agree and we listened to each other and I don't think that's a conversation that happens a lot. There isn't this space to stop and listen. And that hitting pause at that moment of listening and walking away with some new thoughts. Doesn't mean you're going to change your thoughts. Doesn't mean you're going to change theirs. But, but maybe. Maybe. So to me, I always understood that voting was just something you did. The idea of not voting wasn't something you did. And then I have the 
wonderful experience of my mom becoming a citizen and getting to vote for her first time. And I don't know who it was or when it was. I just remember that I got to go. And I remember the first time I voted myself and, and what that felt like and how important it was, even though it wasn't a presidential year. I turned 18 too late in, the, in that presidential year to vote. And it was so disappointing to me that I couldn't vote because I was born at the wrong time of year to be the right age to vote. Um, and I, I don't even miss like midterm elections because it's always been something in our family that this is important. It is important for there to be a real and true vote. I can remember being a kid and seeing what a, a truly rigged vote looked like in the Philippines with the ostensibly elected Marcos regime. They weren't elected. People were scared or paid or simply just not counted. And then the revolution came and Corazon Aquino came into power and the start of representative democracy was there. And that only reinforced that. That was a time for me that was really instrumental in understanding the power of protest, the need for protest, the need for consensus among the majority to move the dial, that you can get the military, the police, you can change the culture and the world and the government through the power of people. And I can't help but want that same thing for the country that I love and I live in. I want that. That's why I vote. That's why I ask others to vote. Talking about mail, I signed up with Vote Forward. I, I, I wanted other people to know why it was important to vote. Uh, vote Forward is an organization, nonpartisan, and they just, we sent letters to potentially eligible but not registered voters, just encouraging them, register and vote. Each of those folks, I have no idea if any of them will ever do it, but I hope that at least one of them read that message and went, why am I not voting? And took the time, this time, next time, to vote and to be a voice in our change. Thank you so much for sharing that, Linda. Um, yeah, I, I'm just really pushing people to go out there and vote. Like I mentioned in the beginning, though, I understand people have uh, various reasons for not wanting to vote. I totally get that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I appreciate all of the outreach that you've been doing. I know I've also been doing some phone banking with different organizations. Um, been working with New Haven Rising. They're a local organization in New Haven and uh, did one phone banking session with Battleground Iowa. I'm going to do another one soon, but yeah, for any people out there um, who are looking to phone bank, get more involved in um, reaching out to to potential voters to go register, go out to the polls, like definitely reach out to me or if you have any questions about like mail 
mail forward is that what organization you were working with Linda vote forward was the org they our big send was um, this past weekend so now they're working with other organizations that are doing text banking and phone banking to reach other voters as well um, you know one of the challenges has always been that you know if you don't have an internet connection that is actually one of the ways that text banking and phone banking is hugely important still is that I think a lot of folks don't realize how Many people in the U.S. don't have access to internet or don't have stable inter access to internet. Um, and so it is hugely important when folks take the time to call and to text. And, you know, I appreciate that some people are like, oh, I'm getting too many of these. Well, consider it part of your civic duty to say yes um, and to understand that this is just another way for us to be able to reach folks and encourage them to be counted and to have their voice heard. Definitely. Um, yeah, so Linda, that is, I believe, all the questions that I have for you. Yeah, do you have anything that you want to add to any of the questions that I've asked, or are you okay to go to the rapid fire questions? I think I'm okay to go to the rapid fire questions. You know, um, I, there's, you know, I could probably talk a lot more about things like, you know, partnering and having conversations about child rearing, and but those are like, they're they're huge and they're big and um you know the short version for me is that I have somebody who listens and gives their opinion and then we figure out what where we go from there because we can have conversations like that and not everybody does but that's a long conversation so <laughs> <laughs> yeah we definitely have to take it one step at a time <laughs> all right Linda these are rapid fire questions I do these with all the guests that I have on the podcast um these will be five very fun casual oh well, maybe the last two aren't so casual but I think they're fun questions to ask so are you ready for your rapid fire questions I'm ready all right first what do you do to relax too much <laughs> uh quickly knit bake walk exercise ski cross-country ski canoe kayak cook cook Cook. Oh, that's actually for fun, believe it or not, um, and organize. <laughs> wow. Okay. There's a lot there. <laughs> I can tell you're a very outdoors person, though. I it am. It seems like. Yeah. Yeah. Nature recharges me. Mm. Next, what is your cell phone wallpaper? Uh, I, I have a lock screen and a not lock screen. The lock screen right now is a flower. Um, which is named Biden. Uh, that's actually the flower variety, and I bought it because it had that name. And then a photo of my family is always the unlocked screen. Always. Hmm. Wow, I can't believe that's <laughs> that's so funny that the flower has that name. Um, next question: What is something on your bucket list? Travel more. Uh, I've been to the Philippines. I've been to Hong Kong. I've been um to multiple places in the Caribbean. I've been to Mexico. I've been to Belize, Canada. I have never been to Europe. I'd also love to visit Africa and some parts of Central Asia as well because I just love being someplace new and, and seeing humans in their human spaces and places. And last question, it's sort of a two-parter, so we can sort of split into two questions. First, if you had one piece of 
life advice to give parents out there, what would you tell them? You will be you and your kids will be them. And when you can share that together, it's a good thing. And my very last question is, if you had a piece of, of life advice to give to your kids to take with them, what would you say to them? Ooh. The world isn't always kind. People aren't always kind. But with our intention, we can shape something better. Thank you so much, Linda. Those are great pieces of pieces of advice. I know you definitely have a lot more and you definitely, you know, expressed so many great lessons and experiences and perspectives in this episode. So I really, really appreciate it. And I thank you for coming on. Um, if people are interested in reaching out to you to ask any questions about any of the topics that we covered today, where can people find you? Um, I'm on Instagram with my full name of Linda Howard Bates, and I can give you the link if you want to put it in the podcast uh, notes. Perfect. Thank you so much, Linda, for being a guest once again. Um, for all the listeners out there, I will be releasing another off-season episode late November, early December um, on staying hopeful and just providing life updates. So look out for that. But in the meantime, please go out there, um, have a plan to vote, go to your polling place, send in your absentee ballots. Uh, there's really nothing to wait for. Just go do it and go do it now. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And thank you again, Linda, for being on the podcast. Thank you.